Is this mic turned on? Wax poetic. Hi, kids. I'm a dinosaur hunter BMX rider. Long division sure comes in handy. All the little girls dream of one day biting into a corn dog and smiling at the camera. If I ran the web, you could email dead people. Wax poetic. Just say no to family values. In the terrarium is herpes. Herpes is a hermit crab. And I don't give a moment's focus to who does or doesn't like the sound of my voice. This is Wax Poetic on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. So what if I write a poem like a song? Good afternoon and welcome to Wax Poetic here on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. I'm your host this afternoon, R.C. Weslowski. Pam Bentley is uh, traveling down in the southern United States and will be back with us next week. Uh, however, we do have a guest in studio today. Very happy to have Marcella Huerta. Hi, Marcella. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It's so nice that we've known each other for a while but haven't seen each other for uh, a while as well. Five years, I think. Um, so I thought we'd we'll t- chat and catch up in a bit, uh, yeah. but we'll get you to read something from your brand new book uh, that we'll talk about too. Awesome. So this is, there is still time to ask questions. I wonder if you took this photo or if someone else took it for you. If so, where are you standing while it is being taken? You know, no one ever proved you were my father. Are you my father? They sit me right beside you. Look at that mole. That is a passed down mole. Now here is a photo of you from when you were not my father. You are holding your daughter's hand from a safe distance. How old are you in this photo? You are not wearing a wedding ring, but why would you be? Only one of you is smiling. Guess which one? Look at his shoes, my sister says. She is your daughter too. She says, I had shoes like that. He looks so young. She says, wow, how old is he here? He was younger than us. Can you imagine already having a toddler, never having done anything in or around your house, and now you're the only one in it to do it? I can't really imagine much from these photos. They're so badly taken. Nice. And that's the first poem from the book? No, I like to jump around. I'm I'm a very nervous person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, I tend to just kind of go with a mood for Mm -hmm. for readings. Um, It's uh, sort of around maybe like the third or fourth piece in the book and uh, the book is Tropico so that poem is filled with a lot of questions yes and is the book um, an exploration of those questions that in that poem yes absolutely the book is uh, basically uh, sort of an exploration of grief my uh, father passed away three I think almost three years ago and uh, I I uh, was feeling very proud of myself at the time because I was like, wow, look at me holding this all together. Uh-huh. I'm doing such a good job with my grief. And uh, and then uh, the next winter, I live in Montreal now, and so um, winter is uh, bleak <laughs> and eternal. <laughs> and uh, then my kind of my sadness started feeling like that. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I started writing um, a few pieces. Um, it's sort of basically dealing with... Uh, intergenerational trauma and the way that um, 
when you are from a diaspora, um, you kind of always have all these questions, but you kind of take for granted that you have this sort of oral history that you can depend mm. on. But then it's kind of like, what do you do when that oral history is either gone because they've passed away or because, you know, so often they're traumatized and they can't really talk about their experiences. Um, and you're kind of just building this story or recollection out of kind of little scraps of information and, and knowledge. <laughs> Who did you investigate then or talk with or have conversations with uh, to find out these stories and maybe re start to rebuild that oral yeah. history? Um, I, uh, I remember I had had a lot of conversations um, with my mom and she started opening up a lot more, um, but also uh, little bits and pieces from my sisters. Um, my dad was also a bit of a, of a liar. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it was kind of interesting to piece together all these different stories from all these different people and kind of try to find the parts that were common thread like among all of them. And then uh, also just kind of looking at some of the at some other like Chilean uh, works that dealt with the with the political coup in 1973 and kind of piecing things together from that. Um, I was never really into that when I was a kid because mm. I was very like I was I wanted very much to not like I wanted to just be like super normal. It felt like um, normal, quote unquote, mm -hmm. and it felt like uh, like a lot of that history was very um it didn't feel normal. You know, I wouldn't, like, talk to any other kids who would be like, oh, yeah, like, my uh, my parents were exiled after a coup. You know, like, I didn't really, especially growing up in Victoria, which is sort of very white and mm -hmm. um, especially my elementary school. But, yeah, so um, it, I was I finally sort of kind of looking into it um, and kind of confirming a lot of things that I had heard. Um, what caused you to flip that uh, idea of finding out about your yourself or, or acknowledging that that's part of your family history? Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of it was leaving Victoria and um, also moving to Montreal and finding sort of like a radical political community of friends and um, and sort of starting this journey of, of of really learning to love who I was and where I was from. And uh, and I feel like I I through that I started to to become of course like curious and interested mm -hmm. in these things that I had rejected for so long, um, and so that was that was basically when like five years ago something like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. What kind of uh, did you have a thing, a thing that surprised you the most about your family? Like you know I didn't want to know about that, but now I do, and it's like oh my gosh, I wish I had known about this. Yeah, sooner. yeah. I mean, I was just um, having a conversation with someone yesterday about parents and how you kind of have this like um you can have this resentment that um that can build up over the years um or these like little things or or things that they do that are that feel like not enough or mm -hmm. or too much and um and I didn't realize quite how traumatized my parents were even though I knew kind of the detail or not the details I knew like I knew so many sort of overarching things and uh, and elements of their stories. I think that I I didn't really put it together um, and didn't really think about how it would have affected the way that they were interacting. I think one of the most um, kind of uh, one of the things that changed kind of my perspective of my dad the most was um, just kind of hearing about how how anxious he was when he moved to Canada. Like these 
these little things of just not little, very big things like this paranoia that he had that he was being followed or, mm. you know, and, and like how kind of based in, in reality that was, how he had been followed, how he had um, been persecuted, how he had been exiled and kind of even things like, um, you know, this sort of resistance to therapy and things because like, why, who are you telling this information to? What are mm. they going to do with this uh. information? You know, like that kind of thing. Um, and kind of putting that together changed a lot for me. A lot. <laughs> yeah. And how you see your father and your... Did it change your... Was that before he had passed away or... Um, not really, unfortunately. I mean, I he and I had started to come to a, a, a good place um, before he passed away. Um, but, uh, yeah, it certainly changed my perspective about him so much. And, and it, yeah, and it was, unfortunately, it was, it was after he passed away. But I think we always had kind of a more positive relationship than... Um, than he had had with certainly his his uh, oldest daughters. Um, he was uh, kind of chilling out in his old age. <laughs> so um, so I mean we already already had kind of a connection, uh, an intellectual connection I think, and uh, and so it certainly helped. Um, it made me more empathetic. And it is funny to kind of like sometimes I'll I, I I will come to this sort of feeling, and I think this is a big part of the book is this sort of conflicting feelings where I'm just like, wow, you know, my dad is this like like iconic figure to me he like symbolizes so much and i'm like man he was such a dick like he was so mean like mm. it's just like such a bummer and it's just like all that conflict of just like i really respect him but man he was a jerk yeah yeah i think that can be tough for for uh, kids of parents yeah. who are like that because you know um you ex the experience of them as human beings is completely different than yeah. you know their friends or the community like they could go out and do stuff in the community and people mm -hmm. go oh what a great guy right fantastic you know and and they don't know the the other things that you know the way they react in, yeah. a, in a home life and all that sort of stuff and totally. it, and it you know it's obviously just people are complex and it's like absolutely. what the hell's going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and you have no like when you're a kid you're just like oh man like you don't have the time or the energy to like try to sort that stuff out you're just like i just got a pimple and i'm pissed about it like yeah. why are you making my life even harder like <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so let's hear another uh, poem from the book yeah then we can talk maybe about the, the book itself and the process and the publisher and all that. Yeah, totally. Let's see. What did I have here? And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wax Poetic here on Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. Our guest this afternoon is Marcela Huerta. And um, it's also a Child Welfare Media Day here on Co-op Radio. And we had some programming prior to our show, and uh, that'll get going again once we are finished at the uh, bottom of the hour. But right now we're going to take another uh, listen to a poem from the book Tropica. Tropico. Tropico. <laughs> no, you don't have to apologize. I should apologize. Uh, Marcella. Great. The Man Without a Face. Your daughter has an escort hold her hand all the way down the airplane's aisle. Her seat is near the back of the plane. A plane is a thing she's never seen before, but it is a thing she's often heard people talk about. In the plane, there are many seats, and all of them are full. In some seats, women are crying and holding children that are bigger than her. In some, there are men with their heads in their hands, having their shoulders patted by other men. No one is touching any part of her except for her hand, and no one is looking her in the eye. Most likely someone explained all of this to her already, but now she feels she has forgotten it all. The woman holding her hand kneels and points to a set of seats. For some reason, the woman is crying. 
Her face is so wet, and her dark makeup runs down to the very top of her lips. She is smiling, too, which turns her face into a blackened mask. Your daughter has forgotten where she is, and the woman's face seems suddenly too close and large. Still, she sits where she is pointed toward and puts her hands in her lap. She is beside a man looking out a window. She does not want to sleep, but she does, and when she wakes up, her tights are wet, and it has been long enough that the wetness burns her skin, even though it is cold. When she wakes up, the man is still there looking out the window. Her ears hurt. Inside her head, she thinks there is not a single sound. Perhaps she will never hear again. She cannot see out the window except for clouds, larger clouds than she has ever even heard spoken of, giant masses you cannot even pretend are in the shapes of cows or boots. At the end of the flight, she wants to look out the window, but the man is still there. He's blocking her view. Finally, he turns around, and suddenly, it is you. Can you believe that it is you? You are looking at her and past her, as though you've never really seen her before, and now you are meeting your daughter. How is it to meet your daughter, when you have already met her before? Look, the bell is dinging. You can leave now. As you walk down the aisle, a woman in a blue vest says, What a pleasant flight. Whoa. <laughs> That's kind of haunt. I find that kind of haunting, um, and I was as I was listening to that and thinking of the other one too. Um, I'm I'm, I'm going to make an assumption that this is like a scenario that you and your father perhaps were in or somebody. But 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 I like what I find intriguing is that it's more it's from a distance. Like there's a reportage going on. You're talking about as if again you're looking at another photograph in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming that that's intentional. And I'm curious as to uh, why you took that route, that sort of distance a, mm-hmm. a bit um, uh, in talking about these things, as opposed to being like, instead of uh, I was doing this, I was doing this. Yeah. So, um, so this one is actually, it's about my eldest sister. Okay. Um, and uh, that I, I wanted to have this sort of blend of these sort of um, very sort of linear uh poems that I have sort of mixed throughout that are like uh, sort of more from my point of view and then uh, mixing that with this sort of more uh, prose uh, prose poetry and those I wanted to take from a, a distance because uh, they they were very much told to me from all these different mm. perspectives that one was um, inspired by uh, having heard the story before from my dad's perspective of him taking the plane from Chile and uh you know, it, I'm, I'm sure it was like a direct flight, so this ginormous flight. He's never been on a plane before, and uh, and he had always told the story as like he was just kind of on this plane. He took this flight, and uh, and it was this big horrible thing, leaving his country, and it essentially saying you know he was never going to go back, or not saying, but assuming mm-hmm. assuming he was never going to go back again, and. Then I heard the story from my sister, and she had been on the plane, and I was like, I could not believe that he had never included her in his story, and it was it changed everything for me about him in in hearing that story because I just thought like, wow, you know, he must have just been so out of it to have this pivotal moment in his life. And to not even be able to engage with his daughter, who he hadn't seen in a while because oh. he had been in hiding. Okay. Um, and he must have just been so in his head. And I'm, I was interested in that in the rest of the book as well, sort of these experiences that I had had with him or that my sisters had had with him and how they were different from what I had heard from him. How they were different from what I had heard from my mom or from all these other people, how they kind of were connected. Um 
and uh, and it was really important to me to have this this second person. Um, it's kind of you know it's like a, a it's base it's essentially like it's this letter to my dad. It's like this series of questions, like you know, like with that first poem, of just wanting to know, um, wanting to know so much and having so little access to the information, and therefore like everything kind of becomes this one question becomes twenty questions mm-hmm. becomes forty questions becomes just my own you know, coming to the realization that there are no answers and it's just like, what answers can you give yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like after the end of this book, writing it, did you cut, what kind of conclusions did you come to or? Um, (laughs) I think I like the only conclusion I really came to was that I wanted to write more, (laughs) which is nice because I, I, (laughs) (laughs) it was because I, I'm coming from a very like a graphic design background. And so, um, you know, like I was always very, you know, because I had these um, very uh, you know, poor parents um, who were very like, you know, get a job that makes money. But they were both very artistic. Right. Mm-hmm. So they were like, what about this design thing? And I was like, sure. <laughs> and so I was I was very much into into that world and always very like obsessed with making enough money to like um, to help them eventually. And and then my dad passed away and my mom was like, well, you know what? I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. You know, don't even worry about it. I was always like, I'm going to buy you a house. I'm going to do this. I'm going to yeah. do that. And then uh, and so then I was kind of rudderless. And like I I always I was working at a, we can talk about this after. But, you know, I was working at Drown and Quarterly in Montreal and uh, loved it and loved working in books. And um, but was always very behind the scenes, like never really thought about like I've always wanted to write and be a screenwriter and all this. Mm-hmm. But like um I never really thought about it as a serious thing. And then now after writing this, I'm just like, I just really want to just keep writing and yeah. keep figuring things out. <laughs> well, you were writing before. Cause I when was, I, yeah. When I, we first encountered each other, you were coming out to the Youth Poetry Slam yeah. and you were on, that. we were trying to figure out, you and I, the 2009 youth so, team. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. And I was, I was definitely like, I was always, um, because at the time I was at, uh, at Emily Carr, I was in, doing my, my degree. And so I was, you know, like, trying so much to escape my my degree Mm. (laughs) and just be doing something else that I was obviously enjoying more you know but was so in denial about it like I was like this is just a thing I do it's not uh, (laughs) it's not what I want to do it's just what I you know love doing and want to do all the time and want to spend all my time doing so (laughs) but yeah yeah it was great I I loved that that was such a that was such a pivotal experience for me the the youth slam team mm-hmm. like re- remember that show that we did in bellingham in bellingham yeah. it was amazing and i went home and i like someone had recorded it i don't remember who is someone in the um someone who planned it or something oh, okay. and just like listening to it and being like wow that's us like look at us go listen to us go <laughs> it's amazing it was so special yeah that was fun so that was yeah i think that was 2009 then. Yeah, something yeah. Like that, yeah um so then you when you went to montreal you got the gig at drawn a quarterly so yeah. you weren't writing you were doing design for them or? yeah i was uh, i was in the um i was in this sort of production assistant um department like basically i had uh like I was telling you earlier, I'm the only person that's moved to Montreal not to go to school. Um, it's like always you go to school and then you don't get a job or you like don't want to learn French or you can't learn French or something. And then you just like come back to BC. And I did the reverse one where I went there and I was like trying to really like pressure my way into a job. Like I, I uh, wanted an internship. So I got an internship and then I was like, well, I'm going to I'm going to work here. I'm going to yeah. make them fall in love with me. <laughs> and so I, uh, I became a production assistant there after working at their at their bookstore they have a brick and mortar bookstore and uh, like just like falling back in love with books again and and reading all the time and getting so inspired by the literary scene there and and then I kind of worked my way up to being an assistant editor there 
and then uh, start as I was when I was doing that I was kind of starting to to write a little bit and so uh, eventually I, I left to pursue like freelance stuff and to kind of work more on my writing and uh, and so now I'm in Montreal and uh, I heard it just starting started snowing this week uh, so I'm excited to go back to that it's gonna be great <laughs> and how long have you been back in BC um, I got in last week so I did a week in Victoria seeing my mom and uh, and doing a Victoria event and then mm. uh, and now I'm here for a week seeing my sister and doing my Vancouver event and then I'm back Cool. And you're, so yeah, let's talk about that. You're doing a reading tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm doing a reading at the Paper Hound, uh, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Be there or be square. It's going to be great. And uh, just to, it's, it's been my first time organizing these because like I was been telling everybody how like blessed I am to have this like a amazing publisher who she does like I literally have no idea how she finds time to do anything she's so amazing and she plans all the plans all the events all the Metatron launches on the east coast these are the first like Metatron approved west coast events and so uh, like I was just like oh I'm so used to just you know waltzing in mm. and doing a reading and then just leaving and um, this time I was like oh my god so much planning <laughs> but uh, yeah it's been so nice just finding this community like finding this re rediscovering the community in Vancouver and in Victoria mm-hmm. it's been so special where did you read in Victoria I read at Bows and Arrows like the coffee roastery okay they were so Drew who owns it I like messaged him just like totally not expecting anything at all like I was like I don't even know if you like I'm sure you charge a, a metric butt ton to you know like rent this space yeah. but he just did it for free he was like oh nice yeah it's so nice I think he just wants to support like literary events in the in Victoria so yeah Bows and Arrows like in the sort of industrial district yeah and are you the only one tomorrow reading or is there anybody else no uh, I'm reading with Asia Moore okay. uh, Brianna Gorelli and uh, Ivana Bezitovsky uh, Bez- sorry excuse me Bezinovsky ugh Bezinovsky. And uh, yeah, my sister's hosting it. Oh, she, nice. She's an actress. She's very talented and amazing. It's going to be great. <laughs> well, what's uh, what's her name? Kayla Zander. Oh, yeah. She, you don't need to know her name. <laughs> Kayla Zander. <laughs> <laughs> um, and are all those people, are they doing book launches too? Or are they just reading friends you know that you wanted to have part of it? Friends I know. I was very much looking for BIPOC poets and uh, mm-hmm. and anybody who wanted to kind of be a part of this. So I just kind of wanted to do basically just um, a few a few readers and, uh, and then just launch my book and just have it be, um, you know, just a night of, of nice readings. Yeah. And then if you want to buy the book, buy the book. Cool. <laughs> and that's, oh, shoot. Um and that's tomorrow. Yeah, that's tomorrow. Tomorrow Thursday, at the yeah. Paper Hound. It's a yeah. awesome. Have you been in that bookstore oh before? I love that bookstore. It's such a dream come true that they're actually like when I again emailed very like ha ha like not sure if you can do this. Yeah. But And when she said when Kim said yes, I was just so I was so happy. It's it's my favorite bookstore in the city for yeah, sure. It's a great space. Love it. I yeah. love it. What's the address? Oh my god, I don't know anymore. Uh, it's been so many years that I. Have. But it's on Pender. It's on Pender. Yeah. It's like Pender it's and Homer, or by by Pender and Camby and around there. Yeah, oh my god. I'm such an idiot. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but it's on just look up the paper hound. Look up hound the paper hound. Bookstore. Go there, you won't regret it. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. You can get uh you can get poetry through a vending machine yes, too. Yes, so well. cool. Old cigarette machine. Yeah, they have that in Montreal everywhere too and okay. I was like paper hound did it first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's hear something else. We're almost out of time. Yeah, I'm just going to do um 
Also, get ready tomorrow to hear me cry all the time. I, uh, cry, I cry like twice a day. It's a, it's a real... It's probably good in a way. I think it's probably good. Moisturizes my skin, you know? <laughs> Let's see. Is it okay if I read a, a slightly longer one? Or? You betcha. Oh, great. Tropico. I buy a game for the computer in the family room. The game is a simulation game. I buy it full price at a game store, not for 50% off from the discount bins at Walmart like I usually do. The game I buy is called Tropico. In it, you are the jefe of a tropical island, and the tropical island is Cuba, though of course the game doesn't say that. I learned to play the theme song on the accordion. I always play it for you when you come over and mommy tells me how nice it is that they make video games for little socialistas como tú y yo. <laughs> What nice bass notes on this song. I love this song. Ah, yes, I know it really well, you say. But I think you're so full of it. I tell Mommy, this song only exists for this game, so there's no way you've ever heard it before. You say it's nice I'm finally doing something interesting with the bass notes. You ask why I never sing the words. You can't believe there are no words. I can't stop rolling my eyes behind your back. Mommy is in a good mood now because it is a secret joke between just me and her, your incompetence. <laughs> I like to describe to you what the game is like. Yes, well, in the game, you start looking at the back of the truck, the cargo of it. You are taken down the anonymous streets of this tropical paradise, and everyone is talking and living their lives. They even show gringo tourists. But once you are in your palacio, you go very far away, and you never see anything up close again, not even an animal. The whole point is you can lead however you want to lead. And so, of course, I am a socialist or a communist or whichever it is. But I do not tell you the rest. At the mines, there is a revolt, and I make a detention center. Though perhaps nothing happens, and I make a detention center. It does not look like a detention center like the ones I know. It looks like a school with a large gymnasium. But I get scared. I cannot send the miners to the detention center. I go back to my old simulation games. In one, I build up little cubes of water and place people who are misbehaving in them until they're all the way under and gone. They're so small. Sometimes I let them live, and they pay to come back and ride the roller coasters. Who knows why? Sometimes Mommy ho hovers up over above me, laughing, smacking me gently on the back of my head, saying little things like, Que malita, mi hija, or Mi hija es asesina. When I go back to being jefe, she asks me how I'm doing, and I zoom out and I tell her, Yes, I'm being very good and very fair, though it's hard. But I am awake very late at night, killing little dissidents in my camps and making the newspapers say things that are not true, putting little posters of little missing people in community squares, telling their families, I'm so very sorry for their unfortunate losses when I talk to them from my palacio. There is a fire in our building because our neighbor was stoned and left all her candles on overnight. The fire spreads into the attic space we all share, and Mommy comes into my bedroom where I'm sleeping so peacefully. I tell her to leave me alone, and she screams and screams. I end up rubbing my eyes, walking down the stairs, and I see her on the phone. She's coughing, even though there's no smoke. She's taking in these long, wild, empty breaths all alone on the phone, shaking and talking in Spanish to the firefighters. Outside, they have to sit her down and tell her, Miss, there's no longer any fire. There's no longer any fire, and it's all okay now. There's not even any damage. But she says there's still a fire, and when she looks me in my eyes, I believe there's still a fire. I wake up one Sunday, and it smells like hot yeast, so she must be making bread. I come into the kitchen, and she is crying, so I think she must be chopping onions for some reason, maybe for empanadas. But when I get closer, I see she's not chopping onions. I don't say anything, and over my silence, she says, Today Pinochet died. Hmm. 
I don't say anything. So she says, did you know he's 91? I say no, and I say, you must be so happy he's gone. I take a piece of hot bread from a basket and rest butter on it to watch it melt. She stands over the sink and says, I wanted to smash his hands to pieces and make him play the guitar, then hang him by his feet and spit in his nose. I'll never in my life get to see him die. And she looks at me. She's so big and close. It's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It made me cry. It's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and that's the title poem from your new book, Politico. Tropico. <laughs> but like I said before, basically Politico, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm sorry. No. Uh, Tropico and um, Metatron Press? Yeah, Metatron or, Press, a little... Or publisher. Publisher, yeah, Metatron Press. They're a little Quebecois uh, publishing house doing amazing contemporary work. Look them up. Buy their fall list. I'm on there. Quezon Sharp, Senayi. Really amazing catalog. Tropico, Tropico, Tropico. Tropico. <laughs> Tropico. Um, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I one question I yeah. thought while you were doing that. Um, did your mom come to the reading in Victoria? She did. Oh my God. I just couldn't look at her. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, boop. <laughs> that doesn't exist over there. But yeah, she was so, so good. So amazing. She, I remember she read this story. Uh, it had been posted on Lemonhound. Mm. And uh, she wrote this little comment on Facebook that said, Oh, Marcy, I am crying and I am not chopping onions. And I just bawled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she she was I mean, like, likes not the the word that I'm it would but it resonated with her and it she's it did, a, a, it she, did yeah it was and good she's for her a, to hear these I think so yeah it was it's really good she she's really happy and she's gonna start writing now too oh, nice. so that's you know that's a checkpoint on there I'm yeah. happy about that awesome <laughs> well thanks for being the guest today here thank on you. Wax Poetic on Co-op Radio uh, Marcela Huerta thank you and if people want to find you online and you want them to find you online how can they do that yeah go for it it's uh, it, I'm at Marcela <laughs> Everywhere, <laughs> everywhere on social media. So that's M A R S M E L L A, unlike the actual spelling of my name, which has one L. Thank you so much, RC. It was so much fun to catch up. Yeah. And tomorrow, Paper Hound, 7 p.m. is yes, the reading. Yes, yes. I assume get there early, otherwise, it'll probably be packed. Yeah, I hope uh, so. Yeah. Um, so check that out if you can. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, again, this is Co op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. If you would like to, if you just dropped in at the end of this program you can go online and uh, to the uh, wax po or co-op radio website and uh, check out the show just uh, go there and you can listen to our archives or it will also be up on itunes as a podcast in the near future thanks to df perizzo and pam bentley for helping uh, put those uh, shows up online and uh, that's all the time we've got for uh, this show thanks again good luck tomorrow and uh, we're going to get back to uh, child welfare media day here on co-op radio thanks for tuning in and thank you for all your support i'm rc weslowski pam bentley will be back with me next week and until then have yourselves a great week in poetry you've been listening to wax poetic on co-op radio cfro 100.5 fm so what so what so what, so what?